0: Uh, well, we have a second vehicle, so then we did a lot of back and forth, and <laughs> it, it, it worked out, but it was a little chaotic way to end the day. But I, I ended the day going to sleep, and I could hear the laughter from our basement coming up through the vents, so that was a, a nice little blessing. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 20 today, and we're picking up the story of David He's narrowly escaped from an attack uh, by King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. Saul's gone off the deep end at this point, and Saul has completely forsaken really what his calling should be as a king, which is to reflect God's grace and love and a wise use of authority and power into the world. And instead, he's become more and more centered on trying to maintain and hold on to power in a position that he believes is his he wants to be seen and celebrated as the leader of Israel and as the king of Israel, but his heart is really divorced from God. And he's forsaken God and his calling as a king, and as a result, his life is kind of slowly spiraling and getting both smaller and more self-destructive at the same time. But what's interesting here is, as uh, Eugene Peterson notes, we're moving into some of the most threatening and dangerous chapters of David's life where he's on the run from Saul for, for quite an amount of time. And Eugene Peterson says, it's no accident that we see David and Jonathan's friendship, Jonathan who's the son of Saul, come to the forefront here. Because what we're seeing and what the text is showing us is that good, close friends are just an indispensable gift from God. They're just such a gift from God. And it's not like David having Jonathan in his life removes the evil. It doesn't remove all the threat, but it makes it bearable. It makes it manageable. And in a lot of ways, you look at David coming through this, and you realize a big part of the sustaining power that God uses to strengthen David is one really close core friend, and that's Jonathan. And, and that should serve as a lesson to all of us. So if you don't listen to the rest of what I have to say, which is kind of going deeper into this, just hear this. Is that, I mean, you know this after a certain level of experience and age, but you're going to have troubles in life. And you're going to have heartache. And the things that are important to you are going to come under threat. You're going to have storms. And you are going to sink without friends. Like really, really close friends. Friendship has a sustaining importance. Close friends are often the glue that keeps us together. And we're not gonna make it through life in a way that's healthy and wise and flourishing without good friends. Now if I would have said that two and a half years ago, people would have been like, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. But I hope we feel that a little bit more in our bones after two and two years of kind of separation and disconnection. We've one of the good sides of the pandemic is that we've maybe been sensitized or resensitized to how important face-to-face connections with people are. Friendships really do matter. Now, I've talked before as a bit of review of Joseph Meyer's books, uh, Search for Belonging, and he talks about four levels of friendships. And this is a broad generalization, but you can think of your friendship, uh, your friendship circle as a succession of circles. In your core... You tend to have, sometimes over the course of your life, one to three core relationships. These are like brothers and sisters. And then you've got close relationships, and people have about four to 12 of those. Then you have casual relationships, 13 to 25, and then somewhere around 25, depending on your social capacity. You have lots of people that you're friendly with, right? Like your favorite barista, or the person at the Walmart checkout, but you don't really know them that well. But one of the things that was instructive about Joseph Meyer's books for me was that his emphasis on helping me to understand that all of these are actually important. Sometimes we think it's only the deep core relationships that matter, but actually these all matter. They all kind of form a social scaffolding that keep us lifted up and encouraged. And there was even research over the pandemic that one of the things that surprised social scientists when it was, ta- when it was removed was what they called um, micro-relationships or micro-interactions. Those interactions with face-to-face, the barista, or maybe a friend at school that you don't know really well, but you know, you're kind of friendly with, or a teacher. All these little connections, not people that you would have said are like really close friends or BFFs, But even taking those smaller social touch points away, those friendly interactions, over time it had a cumulative effect that kind of stacked and our pervasive sense of disconnection grew. And so we understand now more than ever that we really are creatures created for community. And if you're familiar with the biblical story, that shouldn't be a surprise because The first not good in the Bible is God looking at Adam in the garden and Adam has perfect relationship with God. He's got perfect alignment with creation and his own sense of calling and God says, "Ah, it's actually not good for Adam to be alone, for the man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. It's the first not good in the Bible. And that's amazing because Adam has a perfect relationship with God and God is looking at it and saying, yeah, it's not ideal actually we're creatures created for community we need other people and this makes sense because when you kind of pull back and understand not just the story of scripture but who god is god himself is a three-in-one mysterious triune being so it also makes sense to think about god not just as a solitary figure who pre-existed everything but a community of father son and holy spirit who created all that is And so we're not just created for community, we're actually created by community. And so friendships and connections lie at the very, very heart of life. And today's text underscores that. It's an entire chapter that centers on David's relationship with his friend Jonathan. And it's a whole case study in the truth that a core friend, even one, is an enormous gift from God and that we need them in our lives. So I want to move through the passage pretty quickly, and then I want to tease out the significance for us. So verse 1, David flees to Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan, and he says, Jonathan, what have I done? What's my crime? Have I wronged your father? Is he try- why is he trying to kill me? And Jonathan's like, never. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. This is David being really vulnerable with his friend. He's like, I can see what's happening. Jonathan, I'm this close. I know the way your father thinks. I've lived and served under him. I'm just a hair's breadth away from being killed. And Jonathan said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. I mean, this is the king's son. Jonathan has a lot to lose by betraying his allegiance to his vindictive and vengeful king uh, father and siding with David. And David says, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening after tomorrow. And if your father misses me, just say, oh, David earnestly asked my permission to go to Bethlehem. And uh, his family is going to be doing this annual sacrifice. And if your father says, oh, very well, then your servant, meaning himself, is safe. But if your father loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. And then he says, if I'm guilty, then just kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Now, one thing that I want you to note, and you won't see it here, but in the Hebrew, the word there for show kindness is hesed. And it's a really rich word, and if you do any amount of even Google searching on it, you're gonna realize it's very difficult to translate into English. It's very loaded, it's multifaceted. But it essentially, and in, in kind of the the most simplified way of understanding it, is it's a loyal love. Like it's a never-stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So when we hear about kindness, that might sound a little soft. It really has a, lot of, um, has a lot of backbone to it. has a lot of umph. And you see David here inviting accountability and judgment. He's like, there's this plan. I want to figure out if I can get out of this. But then he says to Jonathan, listen, if I have done anything wrong, if I'm, if I'm actually guilty, then, then just kill me yourself. Because I don't want to be handed over to your father. And that's not insignificant because I think what's powerful to me about that is that there's no entitlement here from David. David's actually opening himself up to accountability and even judgment, something that we've seen Saul evade. Right? And David doesn't have to do this. He could say, does Saul know who I am? I'm the new anointed king. Like, I'm going to be king. God is with me. He's against Saul. So he can try and touch me, but like, whatever, God's just going to nuke him from orbit. Like, no, he doesn't say that. He's like, Jonathan, if I brought this on myself, if I'm guilty, then I give you permission to enact judgment. That's an amazing heart of a leader who's willing and even eager to know if they've done wrong, something that Saul has continually hardened his heart against admitting. Jonathan says, never. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David asked, well, who's gonna tell me if your father answers you harshly? So they come up with this plan, and in verse 12, Jonathan says to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. And if he is favorably disposed towards you, will I, not let your, uh, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you, David, as he has been with my father. And then Jonathan says this, but show me unfailing kindness, has said again, like the Lord's kindness, has said again, in Hebrew, deep, loyal love. Show me that kindness, David, as long as I live, so that I won't won't be killed. And don't ever cut your kindness off from my family, speaking of his future descendants. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan's like, I know God's with you. God's going to enact judgment. God's going to deal with your enemies. Just have mercy on me. Remember this. Show me that loyal love. And Jonathan said to David, they come up with this plan, and it's essentially, they're going to be out in this field. Jonathan's going to like bring this little servant with him. They're going to take like target practice with a bow and arrow. And as the little uh, servant boy goes out to get the arrows, if Jonathan's like, hey, like, the arrows are really near, they're just over here, that's a signal that David's supposed to hear, and that's the signal that, like, it's all okay, you can come near and come into the feast and you're fine. But if the arrows get shot and Jonathan's like, oh, the arrows are way beyond the rock, you should, like, go, go and get them, then that's the signal that David is like, no, like, Saul has gone crazy, you um, get out of here. So David hid in the field and the new moon feast comes and then v- verse 25, Saul sits down uh, to eat and he notices that David's place is empty, which is a sign of disrespect near you're the king. This is a festival. All of your attendants should be there. Saul didn't say anything for the first day. He said, oh, maybe something came up with David. He, maybe he's ceremonially unclean, so he's doing the proper thing and withdrawing from this. doesn't say anything. But the next day, David's seat is empty again. And Saul turns to Jonathan in verse 27 and says, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan gives him the story. Oh, there's, you know, this thing that he had to go to in Bethlehem and I gave him charge and it's all good. And then in verse 30 it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And that is a bit more colorful in the Hebrew. You can mm-hmm. let your imagination do the work. He says, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your shame and the shame of the mother who bore you. This is a public festival remember. This is like standing up at a big wedding feast with family and friends and just drilling into someone. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring David to me for he must die. So we're seeing this megalomania emerge in Saul. Saul actually thinks he has the power to establish kingdoms, right? He, did you notice that? He's like, oh, you, I won't let your kingdom get established. He's like, bro, that is way above your pay grade. God establishes kingdoms. Calm down, Saul, right? Like you're getting pretty big for your britches here. But this is what's happened to Saul's heart. He sees everything as an entitlement, as his Not as a stewardship, but as ownership. And now he's leveraging it to threaten his own son. And then Jonathan pushes back publicly. That takes a lot of courage to stand up to a parent who's doing something wrong. Doubly so, a parent who has massive power over you. Doubly so, a parent who has massive power over you in a public context, in an honor-shame culture. And Jonathan says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan realized that his father was intended to kill David, and commentators would say the, the inference of the text there is like hell-bent on killing David. Saul will kill David or die trying. He's even willing to publicly off his own son. Brutal. So Jonathan gets up from the table in anger, obviously a huge sense of betrayal, uh, second day of the feast he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Huge turning point in the relationship between Saul and Jonathan. And for those of us who have grown up in environments where there was um, that kind of uh, physical threat and abuse, you, you understand that w- when that is betrayed, when, when you have someone whose authority and power is given to protect and care for you, to be the very source of the most imminent threat in your life, some would argue, you just never get that full trust back. And so this is a heartbreaking development in Saul's spiral into darkness. In the morning, Jonathan goes out to the field. They do the drill. Jonathan's like, go. And then the boy comes back with the arrows, and Jonathan's like, here, take my weapons, go back. Sends the boy away, and it's just Jonathan out in the field, David. Verse 41, it says, After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground, and they kissed each other, and they wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants. And then David left, and Jonathan went back the town. Notice something about this whole story. David is loved by God. David is chosen by God. David is anointed by God. The preceding chapters make it very clear God is with David in a powerful way but that's still actually not enough. God provides a close friend to walk alongside David in a sense so that David can see and experience God's love and care in a, in a in a more substantial real way. And what that tells me and what that should tell all of us if understanding that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone in the garden and even though David is massively blessed and has all kinds of protection from God that he needs a Jonathan is that we all need friends. We all need really close friends. And I want to say that with a specific focus to the men in this room. Men, we are not as good at cultivating deep friendships as women are, generally speaking. But we really, really need to lean into that because we really need friends. Every man in this room needs a Jonathan in their life. Statistically, adult men have the fewest friendships across any demographic. And it's not just sad, that's actually dangerous. In one study that I read, uh, and I know surveys are somewhat uh, tricky to completely verify, but one in five college aged men reported being chronically lonely. That's one in five. So, next time you see a 20 year old, pick out five of them. One of them is chronically lonely. What that means is you move through your entire day with a pervasive sense of disconnection and loneliness almost all the time. That doesn't mean that the other four to five weren't lonely, but one in five it was chronic. And I'm not sure, based on my personal and pastoral experience, if that changes too much as men move up the timeline of their lives. This has profound impacts on our ability to live into the fullness of our humanity and what God has for us. Here are just some of the health risks that are associated with loneliness. Alcohol and drug use, altered brain function, Alzheimer's disease, a progression, antisocial behavior, behavior, cardiovascular disease and strokes, a decreased memory and learning, depression and suicide, increased stress levels, poor decision-making. Now, this applies to everybody, but again, because this text looks at David and Jonathan, I want to lean into the dynamic of friendship among men because I really do see and experience pastorally how it is reaching a quiet but significant boiling point. A lot of adult men struggle to form core relationships with other men, and there are a few reasons for that. Number one is... Men bond shoulder to shoulder, and women tend to bond face to face. So men tend to bond with each other when they're doing activities together, but as you grow and your responsibilities grow, and maybe you have marriage or family or work responsibilities increase, the margins and free time that you have to set aside to do things with other men shrinks. Their availability, based on your availability, becomes very, very difficult to coordinate if you've ever tried to even set up A basic connection. And so what happens is we can begin spending less and less time doing things with each other. And we're all in the same boat as men and so it's kind of normalized and we think it's okay and it's not great but and then five years goes by, 15 years go by, 25 years go by and there's a profound loneliness that just keeps growing but we're not sure how to change that momentum. Number two, men tend to prioritize their career over relationships. Men tend to be rewarded for striving towards wealth, success, and power, and women seem to have a better, more intuitive um, realization that, not that they're uh, less ambitious than men, but more women are less likely to sacrifice core relationships in the pursuit of wealth, status, and power. More men will intentionally or inadvertently chase after wealth, success, and power to the detriment, and look in the rearview mirror, the wake of their career, and say, oh, I burned a lot of bridges with my kids, with my spouse, with my close friends. I didn't really try to. I was just so striving towards this. And I never stopped to say, I'm so busy climbing the ladder of success. Is it actually leaning against the right wall? Men and women see the point of friendships pretty differently. I thought this was an insightful... um, uh, observation from one social psychologist. She noted most women use friendships to plug into life. That's a, that's a core part of how uh, women form their identity and form meaning. And she said men develop friendships to unplug from life and to de-stress. And that's why um, I think I read it four times. Um, different Females who are interviewed or who are themselves psychologists saying I will never understand how my husband Can go away and play golf for four or five hours with his best friend and when he comes back and I ask him Oh, how are the wife and kids or he's like, I don't know It's like what did you talk about for five hours? I Don't know nothing <laughs> Because men look to their relationships to be a a um, not an escape in a bad way, but, but an unplugging from their responsibilities to let their um, that striving down. And so that can sometimes make it difficult for men to lean into uh, the deeper stuff of relationships. And lastly, we don't often have a lot of models for a David and Jonathan kind of relationship. In our culture, while there's different expressions of masculinity that are increasingly legitimized, there's still kind of a gold standard of... A, a real man, a strong man, a, um, a competent man is autonomous and stoic and kind of, kind of that rugged individualism, the army of one. We would never go so far as to say the ultimate man is Rambo, but we also highlight people like that, like, wow, that's someone who doesn't seem to need anybody and just can do it all and doesn't show vulnerability and just powers through life. There's a lot of reward in our culture for men who can do that on the level of wealth and prestige and status. And for some people, even like that sense of like, wow, that, that's really impressive. And so men can just get sucked into this idea that that's the gold standard. That's what we should be striving for. And so these are some challenges. And even that one picture at the end, even, even though it, it actually contravenes uh, so much of what is in the Bible, that can still be the dominating picture that we hold to and that we strive to, where relationships aren't really that important. Like, it's great, you know, you can have buds, but the idea that you'd have a friend that you would cry with and embrace, that's foreign to so many of us. And so there are these and maybe other challenges for you that uh, when it comes to building close core relationships, but it's really important to push through that and to fight For and ask God for core relationships because the Bible, you know, I I would use the language of the Bible kind of sacralizes male friendship. We see it all the way through Scripture. David and Jonathan are kind of like the par excellence example, but it's even worth considering that when God Himself comes in human form in order to perfectly manifest not just true humanity, but true masculinity perfect male humanness he prioritizes again and again friendship and deep community and especially among men and in john 15 after uh, he's washed the disciples feet he says i no longer call you servant because a servant doesn't know his master's business but instead i've called you friends for everything that i learned from my father i've made known to you and so if being this autonomous stoic Independent man's man was God's design for humanity. Jesus failed pretty miserably. He's called a man of sorrows. He cries a lot. He's uh, filled with empathy. He's prioritizing and spending time with 12 men. And then even within those close relationships, there's a core of Peter, James, and John that he invites into special experiences with them, like the transfiguration. And when he's going through his darkest moments in Gethsemane, he asks them for help. Will you pray for me? Will you stay up with me? I'm literally moving towards hell. Will you go into battle with me? Everything Jesus does reveals that he's deeply invested in friendships of disclosure and vulnerability and courage. So how do we build friendships? And then again, with a special focus uh, to the men who are present here. Well, first we need to understand what makes a deep friendship, and I think that there are three elements. The first is that deep friendships are covenantal. You see this again and again where David and Jonathan are swearing covenants to each other. They're making vows and binding promises. This isn't like a, yeah, as long as this is working out and, you know, there's kind of like a quid pro quo, that's awesome. They're entering into something covenantal, which means like a very sacred promise before God. It's, it's a promise that it's bound together by that word hesed. It's love. Loyal love. Love till the end. Not love until it becomes inconvenient but love all the way through. It's, it's David saying to Jonathan and, and in reverse, I'm going to be with you no matter what. I am with you no matter what. I'm going to lean in when other people step away. When other people are like, ooh, this is crazy. Yeah, this is, cost is too high for me. It's been great, David. Thanks. Jonathan's like, I will be there. Now if you're married, if you're married, you've entered into the covenant of marriage, so this should be the posture towards your spouse, but it also should apply to your close friendships, not every friendship. You can't have a covenantal kind of commitment to 25 people, but to one, two, maybe three other friends, you can. And part of what a covenantal relationship means is that it's not transactional, right? It's not. Um, as long as I'm getting what I want, that I will continue to love or I'm keeping a tally, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's not like, well, I'm gonna, I've done a lot for them lately. They haven't done a lot for me, so I'm just going to like take my foot off the gas and let them kind of catch up. And then once I think it's even, then we'll start. No, no, no. It's a self-giving love. It's not consumeristic, right? Where you really see the other person as a way to gain something. It's about modeling the Hesed love of God into the life of someone else. It's a, it's a really high and holy calling, and that's why you can't just spread that kind of love out to anybody that you come into contact with. It requires significant investment. Deep friendships also have to be open. You have to be transparent, you have to be vulnerable. I know guys aren't good at being emotionally vulnerable, um, but the reality is the depth of your friendship will be determined by kind of vulnerability times time spent. Um, if you just spend a lot of time with people and don't actually share things that are important to you, highs and lows and things in between and doubts and struggles in an appropriate way, you're not going to have a depth of friendship. And without the, without the vulnerability, you're going to have like those acquaintances and casual relationships and golf buddies. And, but you're not going to have a Jonathan. Because developing a Jonathan takes the risk of showing vulnerability like David did, like crying in front of him and saying like, I'm close to death, like I I really need you. Number three, deep relationships have sympathy. And sympathy is a compound word that comes from simpatico and pathos. And simpatico means common and pathos means passion. And so deep friendships have a common passion. And for David and Jonathan, that common passion is serving God. Twice they say, The Lord is witness between you and me forever. They don't say, The Lord is witness way, way up there out in like the third dimension of heaven. He's a witness over our friendship, He's a witness between us. He's the tie that binds. They see their friendship as being tripartite. It's not just David and Jonathan, they're united by a common passion. To serve and honor God and without some kind of common passion you won't be able to build a relationship I, I mean I, I can't speak to a woman's experience but I can say that is absolutely true uh, as, as a man and, and the men that I talk to and this is why if you are simply trying to make a friend and gain friends it actually won't work you have to be pursuing something beyond the friendship otherwise it's, it's just not going to work. Men bond shoulder to shoulder as they're fellowshipping, as they're moving together towards a common mission. If it's just like, hey, let's hang out and be friends. It, 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 there's something in the way that God's designed us. We need forward momentum. C.S. Lewis said, this is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else beyond the friendship. We should be serving a greater goal. We're climbing a mountain together and we're saying, hey, come join me. We're going to do this together. So how do we make friendships? Well, the easiest way maybe for us as men, and this has, I know, applicability to everybody, but again, I want to speak to men specifically because I think there's a a need to be clear on this. The easiest way is to be proactive and plan and and, and hang out with people and hang out with some kind of a purpose. It could be something casual, a game night, a potluck, you know, camping, sporting event, a concert. Could be exercising, could be joining a team or joining, you know, volunteer firefighting, spending time in nature together, right? Hiking, fishing, road trips, volunteering together. Again, men tend to bond well shoulder to shoulder. And so, if we want to make friends, we have to be a friend. We have to be the one taking responsibility instead of waiting for someone to approach us. We say, hey, I'm going hiking, do you want to join me? Hey, I was thinking about checking uh, or hosting a thing at my house, do you want to come over for the game? Or hey, I was going to go fishing, do you want to join me? We have to invite other people in. And when we do, we have to keep showing up. We have to keep going to the same place again and again and again, often for honestly a long time. And the older you are, and I can say that because I'm like 45 now, I'm like midlife, sometimes it takes a lot of time of showing up until something kind of clicks. And I'll say pastorally, one of the big things that I know some, not everyone, but many people want when they come to a church is they want to meet people, they want to make connections. And so they'll tell me a month on, they'll say, oh, I found it really hard to meet people at church. And I'm like, well, you've come like, how many times have you come? And I'll say, oh, I've come like three out of the last four weeks. I'm like, yeah, like that might take like a year, a year and a half at that pace, just to make a, get some momentum. Like we're not in high school anymore where we're forced into being around each other all day long and probably many of you are thankful for that. But there was a lot of social pressure pushing us together when you're younger. When you're older, you can kind of make your own spheres. And so that means it's just going to take longer often. Sometimes you get those fast friendships, they're amazing. But often we just have to keep showing up to church, keep showing up to the height, keep showing up and keep inviting and being persistent. And then we have to be vulnerable. We have to find ways to say, hey, this is really important to me or I wanna share something awesome that happened to me. and it's always context sensitive. It's not that you're going to show up to a, you know, a, a camping trip and just start crying over the campfire and sharing your, your d- deepest struggles and stuff, right? That, that might not work in terms of facilitating trust. You know, you've got to be meeting out the vulnerability. But there's got to be some vulnerability. Even if you're talking about sports and the weather and politics, just go one step further and say, like, why that's important to you or when someone is sharing with you like they're passionate about um, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, even though there's no real reason under God's green earth why you'd ever really need to be a fan of the CFL, you can be gracious and say, Rick, I want to understand why is that important to you? And then he shares and you judge him, but then you overcome that judgment (laughs) with grace, and you're like, I think we can be friends despite your dramatic and idolatrous love of all things CFL. But that vulnerability is often what gets that started. You know, because somewhere along the way, Rick and other people have had to say, this is something that's a real passion of mine. And even that's risky among men because we want to be thought well of by other men. But we have to be vulnerable. So keep showing up, building rapport, making those connections, even if they're small. And knowing it might take a long time before those connections build to a critical mass where we're like, oh, it's happening. Like, I'm starting to like feel some momentum here. And maybe the person isn't a core friendship, maybe they'll never be a core friendship. But they're advancing from maybe like an acquaintance to a casual friendship, or a casual friendship to something a little bit closer. Okay, in closing, and I've said a lot, um, I'm passionate about this, because this is an area where I fall short in my own life. Don't miss this. David and Jonathan the deep friendship emerges from their friendship with God. And you can base friendship on a lot of things, but nothing is stronger than a shared pursuit of God and His kingdom, His priorities. Notice that they say again and again, the Lord is witness between you and me. And a growing, humble, sincere faith is the best foundation for a covenant friendship. Because if you haven't experienced the hesed of God, the loving loyalty of God, it's much harder to access that and give that to someone else. So there's always going to be a bit of a limiter on your relationships if you're operating from kind of like a human-centric point of view. But once we turn to Christ, once we put our trust in Him, once we receive His forgiveness and love and grace and begin to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there's new dimensions of that relationship that open up new possibilities with people around us. So because I've given my life to Christ, I have a new mission that I can invite other men in my life into. I can be more open and transparent because I'm accepted by God. I'm loved by God. I don't need to play the game of trying to impress other men. I can show up for others in a loyal way, in a consistent way, because I have someone in my life who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you even until the end of the age. And yes, I still need others. God's uh, and Christ's love for me is real, but. It rescues me from having a neediness where I like need and I'm clinging and I'm desperate for that relationship. There's a satiation in my soul that allows me to come into a relationship wanting to bless and serve another and not needing to get from them and cloying into um, an immature expression of connection. Because I'm growing in an ever-deepening sense of being a friend of God, I can actually grow in being a better friend to people around me. And that's the deeper truth of this passage. It's not simply that we need friends, but we actually need a friend of sinners. We need someone who's gonna show us loyal love even when we don't deserve it. And that's what Jesus offers. That's what this story is pointing to, the Hesed love of Jesus who says at one point, greater love has no one than this that you would lay down your life for your friend. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great little maxim, Jesus. I'll remember that. I'll put it on my fridge. It's not just a maxim for Jesus. He actually does it. He goes all the way into death. He goes all the way into the cross out of loyal love for you and me. He didn't just talk about it. He went to spiritual war in our place. He took upon himself spiritual death so that we could have spiritual regeneration, healing, eternal life. And that's Hesed love. And that's the love God wants to bring into our lives. That's the love God wants us to be renewed in and then to offer to people around us. And so the secret to developing great friendship is this, is actually to lay your life down for Christ. And then you'll begin to experience deep and meaningful friendship with God that will spill over into deep and meaningful friendship with others. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of friendship and for...